and welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm AJ Brandon, and today we've got a special guest. Shannon, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Shannon, do you want to talk us through what got you into games and how that got you into board games professionally and how that brought you here today? Sure. So I've been playing games as long as I can remember. You know, my parents had a cabinet full of board games, all the classics, you know, Monopoly and Scrabble and such, and then also a lot of Ravensburger games and games that it's funny because I see people now go, oh, this is a really fantastic game. And I get to go, oh, I played that as a kid. I guess I was ahead of my time. But I fell out of gaming for a little bit, going to school and traveling in my early 20s. And then it was only about maybe eight years ago or so that a friend said, oh, you know, I have this great game. You need to come play it. And I was like, what is this? And I think it was Smash Up. And I said, this is terrible. I really hate this. Um, and he was a Magic the Gathering player. And he's like, oh, this is a great game. And I'm like, okay, but there's got to be other board games, right? And that led me into hobby games. And I started going to board game cafes and playing them. And like most designers, I think, I almost immediately started designing my own games. And this wasn't the first time. I designed a game in um, elementary school as well that everyone was saying, oh, you know, you should get this published. It's a really good game. And I was like, do people actually publish board games as a job? That seems silly. Like, who would do that? <laughs> and I think back to that and go, oh, well, look at me now. But that led to me designing my own games and going to prototype conventions and lots of game conventions and playing escape rooms because of course I also loved puzzles and grew up doing puzzle books and puzzle games all the time. Um, adventure games and puzzle video games and all that kind of stuff. And I ended up uh, a few years ago getting a job with the game design course at Wilfrid Laurier University where I got to do research on escape rooms and sit in on a bunch of board game classes and just fantastic. So now I still design games. I've been, um, the last eight months or so, I've been doing a lot of consulting and freelance design and creating games and puzzles. And it has been fantastic. And this is like, my dream is just being creative. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. And it is very well earned. You're a fantastic designer. Aww. <laughs> and we're going to talk about some of your designs later in the show. <laughs> you are well known for puzzles and escape rooms. Let's start the discussion with just a working definition of what is a puzzle. Because I think there's a lot of different ideas as to what a puzzle can be. And I just want to make sure that everyone's on the same page with this. <laughs> so I actually have a very, very simple definition of a puzzle, which is a puzzle is a game with a solvable state. So if there is one single state at which it is solved, that's a puzzle. And in this case, a game is defined as structured fun. So in your mind, would something like checkers be a puzzle because that has now been solved? Sure, yep. Generally, it's harder to do a puzzle that is competitive, but in the case of checkers, it's head-to-head, -head, and so one person solves it faster than another. 
Usually though, it's harder when you're reacting to other things, but then you get into cooperative games and um, lots of board games that are actually puzzles themselves. So how would you draw a distinction between a puzzle and a sort of deduction game, like a Hanabi, for instance? So a lot of those are just puzzles that players are working together to solve. Cooperative and deduction games like that are replayable puzzles that have um, variable inputs. And like those inputs allow you to randomize the experience, but it's still a puzzle. And that's why you do get replayable puzzles like solitaire. Solitaire card games are puzzles, but because the cards are randomized, it's a different puzzle every time. But the rules are the same. How you play it is the same. And there is a solvable state. One thing we like to do is use markers for our definitions. So what are some markers that would identify a puzzle experience? The things I'm thinking of are things like lack of other players being able to mess with your puzzle, you know, Calico, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. I have sort of a puzzle I'm trying to solve on my player board. But I think one of the things that makes it a puzzle to me is the fact that other players can't mess with what I'm doing. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, those types of games like Sagrada or Azul or Calico or those games where everyone has their individual board in front of them and they're working on that and the inputs are randomized, but with those inputs you are trying to solve your puzzle as best as possible. Yeah, those have puzzle elements for sure. Still board games because there is that <laughs> random element. The random element is what makes it a game and where you're interacting with other players and a competition. Whereas escape room puzzles or tabletop puzzles or puzzle books don't have that random input. Right, that's a really strong marker, I think. Are there any other markers that you can think of that would identify something as being a puzzle or to give people an idea of the types of games that we're talking about here? That's a tough one because it is a very broad definition, like a game with a solvable state. There are a lot of games where, yes, this is your end goal, is just to reach this particular goal. So it's hard to say. A crossword is a puzzle, and a sudoku is a puzzle, but a maze is also a puzzle. And there's, there's lots and lots of, of different types of puzzles. I think it comes down to the same type of thing, like, is the mind a game, or is it you know, an activity? <laughs> it's like, is this a puzzle, or is it a game? Well, it's a spectrum. So mm -hmm. things can be both. <laughs> For sure. I don't hear people talk about this lens a lot, but to me, there's a really strong distinction between two types of puzzles, comprehension puzzles and manipulation puzzles. I've heard this referred to as, I think, linear and lateral thinking as well. So comprehension puzzles basically say, here's a situation that looks impossible. And as soon as you understand it, you have solved the problem. It might be like a shift in your thinking of like what is possible from this puzzle. But basically they give you the impossible situation. Then as soon as you understand what the exact state of things are, you instantly solve it. And there's manipulation puzzles. And those are basically, here's a bunch of pieces, manipulate them into the correct position, and then you will win. The most obvious example for this would be a jigsaw puzzle. But functionally, Pandemic is an elaborate version of this. Do you use this lens at all? Yeah, oh, for sure. It's definitely useful. What I call these are process puzzles and aha puzzles. So <laughs> I like that. Yeah, so <laughs> um, process puzzles 
are the ones like a jigsaw puzzle where the realization is really quick. You know exactly what you need to do right from the beginning. There's usually explicit rules, maybe implicit rules. If it's like a jigsaw puzzle, you know that you're putting everything together. You don't need explicit rules for that. You just, it's implied if there are pieces that look like they fit together, you should probably do that. Um, but then the process of solving it takes time. So it's a long process. Whereas aha puzzles um, are often unknown rules. You don't you are given no information up front about what to do and you need to have that realization as to what is what are the rules to this game this puzzle and what do i need to do to solve it this is also a um, a spectrum and it's a thing you have to consider when designing puzzles is to balance this within a puzzle game if you have a puzzle game that is all process puzzles that's really tedious and boring and it's also one of those things you have to think about where are you putting your process puzzles in the game? Like it's really good to alternate process and aha style puzzles because it, it mixes it up. But also if you're on the like second last or last puzzle in your game and it's a process puzzle that takes players 10 or 15 minutes to solve, your players will hate you. Because at this point in the game, you should be building up your tension for a big climax and process puzzles slow the game down quite a lot. Um, on the other hand, process puzzles are really great for um, games with a lot of players because then players who are maybe not quite as engaged in the solving can just go and do the process. They can say, oh, hey, I know how to do a jigsaw and then just put them together. Or kids, kids love jigsaws in puzzle games. Um, whereas aha puzzles, those are a lot harder to place in your game because if a player has seen that type of puzzle before, they will get the aha very quickly. If they haven't, it could take them anywhere from one minute to never to get that aha, which means they are the most satisfying puzzles for players to solve because everyone feels very clever when they have figured out a puzzle and there were no rules and they just had to make the connections. But on the other hand, if they never solve it, you need to either have really good hints or you need to work that into the timing of your game. The fact that players might not get it. Um, and also aha puzzles can be very much in the designer's head. You don't want those types of puzzles where you now have to be like, what was the designer thinking when they designed this puzzle? Like try and interpret, oh, well, clearly this green square on the wall means that this red box needs to be opened like it, you need to if you have to try and read the designer's mind it's not going to be a great aha yeah and i definitely experienced that where there was a puzzle that once i read through and i'm like oh that's what i was supposed to do i'm like that would have been really clever but like there was no way i was connecting those dots in my mind <laughs> exactly there's one particularly egregious one i'm not going to spoil what it was from but I had to literally call a phone number to solve the puzzle. And then like, you have to realize that you have to like pick up your phone, call a number. This isn't like an app based game. Even if you want me to do something that extreme, like, I think that's awesome. And I think that would have been really fun and satisfying, but I think it needs to be telegraphed really hard. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's a lot of this puzzle games are about storytelling because players are only 
playing through them once generally because like pure puzzle games you can only play once because once you've solved the puzzle you've solved it you can't do it again so you have to think of it like you're telling a story because that's what it is you're giving your players an experience just like a movie or just like a novel you use the same process as you would to write a novel and the story structure so you want an introduction, you want the ramping action, you want the climax and then the denouement at the end. That's really, really important to give a good experience. And in that introduction to the game, that first two to three puzzles, you had better set expectations for what type of game this is going to be. If players need to destroy something in this game, like rip paper apart or, you know, cut open something in the game they better be doing something along those lines in the first two to three puzzles if you need them to reuse puzzle pieces hopefully the first and second puzzle will both have um, objects that they'll need to reuse because a lot of puzzle games you use something and then discard it for the rest of the game and don't use it again um, if you want people to make phone calls or go on the internet to look for things they had better be doing that within the first three puzzles because if it comes to your climax of the game and it's maybe the second last puzzle and all of a sudden they have to do something that they've never done before previously in the game, you're going to lose them. And they'll lose trust in the designer, they'll lose trust in the game, and the rest of their experience will be them doubting every single thing they see. You can think of it like it's sort of a callback when you have a really minor version of that aha puzzle and then you have like the really big, powerful moment later on. And you can also think of it like a little hint or a, a way to give the players a bit of information, right? Because you don't want to stump your players. You want to guide them through the experience. That's a really important difference. Yeah. It's easy to make a hard puzzle. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's super easy to make a hard puzzle. But yeah, the I think a lot of designers have the impression that they're trying to challenge their players. And if the players can't solve it, then they win. And it's like, no, <laughs> the designer isn't winning anything. You know, you want your players to have a great experience. You want them to get all the way through the story and get to the end and get that big finish. If they get frustrated halfway through your game, then they're not gonna finish it and they're not gonna have a good experience. There was a escape room I did on a cruise ship and you would have just been beside yourself with how horrifically poorly this was designed. They had a chest full of books. Each of these books had one page missing. So it's like, okay, you can realize that there's a consistent thing here. The page is missing. So then at the end of the escape room, it's like, so what was the deal with that page? Oh, it was a red herring. 50 books of red herring? Okay. Are you kidding? <laughs> Red herrings in general should not be in escape rooms. Like players will make their own red herrings and you have no idea. It's hilarious to see when people get into their puzzle solving mode, they will take anything as a clue. You do not need to include red herrings. I actually just did a online game um, and it had, you had an inventory so you could like, select things in the game and add it to your inventory and one of the things was oh you have picked up a deck of cards it is missing its jokers okay clearly that seems like a clue that need would be needed to be used later nope not at all 
we finished the game and the jokers and the cards were still in our inventory, never used. It's like, why? <laughs> There's no purpose for that. It just wastes players time and you don't to waste their time. You want them to solve the puzzle. And if they solve it really fast, well, then how you fix that is by adding more puzzles. But if they can solve your puzzles quickly, that means they are well marked, they are well signposted, and that's a good thing. Absolutely. Especially if they're really good puzzle solvers, okay, they're really good puzzle solvers. Let them feel good and clear your room quickly. I don't think there has ever, in the history of the world, been someone who, at the end of a puzzle, is like, oh, it was a red herring, how fun, thanks for including that. Like, no, no one thinks red herrings are fun, are you kidding? No, I think the only time that I've seen red herring used in an interesting way is there was a puzzle in a game and there were a bunch of fish on the wall. And so each fish had like the species name and where it was found and something else. And you needed, you needed these to solve a puzzle. Well, one of the fish was like Latin for red herring. And like, it was also all of the, where it was found was like the, the crimson lake and like all, like it was, and that was really funny. And so that was the, like one of the fish that you didn't need to solve the puzzle. And that's about the only clever use of red herring that I think I've seen. I love that. (laughs) That is fantastic. When you sit down to start designing a puzzle, where do you begin? (laughs) Like, I don't even understand how that process starts for some people. For me, I always start with the story and the environment. I rarely, rarely look at a puzzle individually. I look at where it sits in the context of the game. Because for me, story is above all, like the most important thing. Even if the story is really lame and really simple, (laughs) there is still a story to every puzzle game. And that's what you're trying to tell. So I always want to see what's the context for the puzzle. What are players doing at this point in the game? What would they reasonably expect to do in this space? So I look at that. So for example, here's one that I've wanted to design for a while. A game set in a cat cafe. Someone broke in and all the cats ended up escaping. So now you're trying to find the cats to return them to the cat cafe. This was like a digital game that I was designing. And so in this case, like what would players reasonably be expected to do? Well, you know, clearly they're going to start searching in all the cupboards and everything to see where the cats are. Maybe they're going to pull out food. They find some cat food and they go, oh, you shake the cat food and you pour that into a dish oh, look, you put something in the dish, cupboard pops open, and you've now found a cat who has come for the food. Little puzzles like that that are more environmentally based. And I also look for cool moments in the game. Do you want players to be interacting with this giant robot that they're finding pieces for and piecing them together to make a robot that will then, once you've finished assembling him, he will talk to you? and give you the next clue. Like that's a cool moment, especially if you have all the lights and the spotlights and fog and like kind of a Frankenstein moment of now the monster lives. Yeah, like finding those neat moments and the story beats that you really want players to be engaged with and pushing players to the end of the game. So that's that's really where I start is like the environment, the story, and what cool moments do I want to be included? 
And how do you come up with the clever aha moment answer puzzles? Where did those ones come from? Because those are so outside the box sometimes. <laughs> That's hard. I get ideas for those from everywhere. So, you know, looking at things in the world and being like, oh, this would be in that environment. How can I make that a puzzle? Also, knowing your end goal for a puzzle is really important. If you're designing a puzzle individually, that's really where you should start is like, what is the answer going to be? I have a, a really cool puzzle that I love to use and it's like set in an art classroom. So it's all involves colors and the answer you need to get is a rainbow. So that is very thematic, right? I'm like, oh, a puzzle in an art classroom where the answer is rainbow. I'm gonna use colors to make a code that you need to do to solve this puzzle. So that's kind of think backwards is how I do it. Um, knowing what your goal is makes it easier to back design, <laughs> you know, instead of back solving, you're back designing. You know what the answer is, and then you need to figure out what you're giving your players so that they can get to that answer. One thing we've spoken about before on the show is aesthetics of play, the core emotive reasons that players are drawn to games such as fellowship, playing with friends, or um, or dominance, just being able to overpower another person has this sort of core visceral feeling to it. What sort of player profiling or psychographics or core motive reasons do you see for players enjoying puzzle games? What sort of lenses do you use? Uh, so one of the most common lenses I use are based on experience, like how many games have players played and how invested are they? And you can see actually really distinct profiles based on where players are in their puzzle journey. <laughs> so newbies have played maybe like zero to two games. So in this case, like everything is new, everything is amazing. They find a black light, that's phenomenal. They like a lock pops open or a drawer pops open and this is an amazing experience. Like everything is fun and I think a lot of newbies are just going to these games to, to have fun. They want to have fun with their friends. They want to feel maybe clever for a moment or two, but it's really just a fun experience. They're not trying to be super competitive and like designing, this is the majority of escape room players. 90% or more of escape room players have played two games or less. Designing for them, it's like, Focus on making the experience fun. Give them stuff to do as a team. Make sure the flow of the game is really good. So hopefully they don't have to ask for many hints. They don't get stuck on puzzles. Just give them things to do that's very clear. Experienced players are kind of the mid-level. So maybe like five to 10 games around there. That could vary. But these are like the competitive players. They've done enough games that they think they're really, really good at puzzle games. So they're super competitive. They want to top the leaderboard. They want to have the fastest time. So they rush through the games as fast as possible. They don't care about amazing effects necessarily because they're not in there for the story. They're not there for the effects. They're there to win. And so that's, that's very like almost the challenge aspect of it. And there are escape rooms that have head-to-head -head games 
where you can be separated into two teams and both teams are doing the same escape room at the same time and see who wins first. A lot of corporate-based escape rooms do that. Those are the types of games that these players really like. And then you have enthusiasts. So enthusiasts have played lots of games, lots. And when I say lots, I mean, I have met multiple players who have played over a thousand escape room games. I'm not anywhere near that. But <laughs> enthusiasts don't care necessarily about the competition. They don't care about seeing new things because they've already seen it all. So there's not really a lot that you can do that will be new to them, but they just want to have fun. They want to play good games. They want to learn about the story. If there's actors in the rooms, they might spend the entire hour just talking to the actor and trying to figure out the actor's entire backstory. Um, they don't care necessarily about winning, although they will probably win the game anyway. And if there's a unique format or something they've never seen before, that's really cool, but it's a bonus. These are the super relaxed players who just want to have fun, enjoy time with their friends, and just explore. The puzzles are almost incidental to the enjoyment of the game. That's really interesting. Once you get to that place where you played so many, like you say, it stops being like a novel thing and it starts just being the thing that you're doing, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's funny. I belong to a lot of enthusiast communities and we hear about it every time a new game comes out that does something different. I'm pretty sure every enthusiast plays it within the first month. Oh my gosh. Um, if possible, because it's new, it's different, it's a really cool thing. Let's go have fun in this new space. Within those categories, you always want to make sure that you have a variety of experiences. So like unlike board games that kind of they're targeting a particular type of player and they want to give that player a specific type of experience. I've read a lot of briefs for board games and it says we want a two to four player game for families of, with kids these ages. And, you know, there's a very specific brief for board games. Escape rooms, you want to appeal to as many people as possible because these teams aren't going to be so homogenous. You're going to have people who like reading stories and narrative. You're going to have people who like physical puzzles, people who like logic puzzles or math puzzles. So within all these categories, you also want to include all these different types of puzzles so that every player can have like a hero moment at some point mm. during the game. Every player can be like, I solved that puzzle. I actually have a fun story about that. So I did um, a game in Toronto actually with, a, I think we had about 10 or 12 people doing this one game. And most of them had never played an escape room before. And the one, he was very anxious that we know that he did not solve puzzles and he wasn't good at puzzles and he hated solving puzzles. And so he was probably gonna be absolutely no help in this game. So of course, with that kind of attitude, he didn't even try to solve puzzles when he came into the room. But this room had an actor who was pretending to be, I think, like the janitor or something in the room. And so he was there if we needed hints and things like that. Well, this guy just talked to the actor the entire time. He was asking, oh, about your life and what about this? And oh, by the way, you dropped that thing over there. Well, him talking to the actor set off 
a whole bunch of consequences that we would not have won the game without him. Mm. So it was a really neat aspect to have the person who doesn't want to solve puzzles, who just wants to socialize, he still had a hero moment in the game. When we went back through it later, they were like, oh yeah, if you hadn't told the actor to pick up that thing, then this would have happened and you were the one who saved the whole team. That's awesome. Yeah, so it was a really cool moment and he got to have his hero moment even though he didn't actually want to solve puzzles when he entered the game. I've seen that in a variety of ways too because I've played a bunch of the Escape Room in a Box games where you know you don't have actors in that situation, but you do have a variety of different types of puzzles. And I think one of the ones that works really well for that is the Where's Waldo sort of style puzzles where you're looking for like a hidden thing somewhere in one of the pieces of art. Everybody else can focus really heavily on these really nitty gritty difficult puzzles. And the person who's like, whoa, that seems a bit intense. They can just chill back, look at the art, drink it in and say, hey, wait, did anybody notice this? And then they have that hero moment that you were bringing up, which is so powerful and I think if you don't have that moment at all and you're newer to escape rooms, then it might feel like, what was I doing here? Yeah, I totally agree. That's why if you want to have a really difficult puzzle game, you still need to have easy puzzles (laughs) because you don't know who's going to play your game, especially tabletop escape room games where you have no idea who's grabbing this. Maybe there are kids involved. Even if this is a game meant for older players, throw in a couple easy things because you don't know. I had a player who was uh, playtesting one of my games and was super excited. There was a math puzzle. Most people hate math puzzles, but he was an engineer and he's like, I don't know what any of these others are, but I can do a math puzzle. So you never know who's going to be playing your game. Personally, I generally don't like the manipulation puzzles because you have to have the exact right answer or you can't continue. And this can happen with aha puzzles, obviously, as well. In fact, it might happen more with aha puzzles because you can't just sort of keep messing around with things until something clicks. You have to really think creatively. Are there any solutions to this type of problem besides the obvious of like letting players skip it or giving them increasingly obvious overt hints? So for a good puzzle, you really want them to be signposted. And by signposting, I mean you want clues within the game that literally points at what the players have to do, um, even if it's not in words. Um, So things like a spotlight shining on an area to go, this is important. Maybe we should go look over here. Things like that is like signposting. As far as like difficult puzzles, really, I think, hint systems should be incorporated into the game. Ideally, players wouldn't need hints at all. That is the goal for a puzzle game, is you want players to play through without needing hints at all. But realistically, every team will need a hint at some point. So you want the hints to be easily accessed. If you can make them apply with in-game logic, that's amazing. Like this is where a lot of app games can really do well is um, I've played a game where hints were given through a website by one of the characters in the game. So it became very immersive and you didn't feel like you were asking for hints. You just felt like you were chatting with a character and then all of a sudden they said something that you needed. The starting very vague and incrementally increasing in detail, that's pretty standard for hints. Or allowing players to skip puzzles or come back to them. Like that's where multi-linear puzzles 
come in handy where it's not just one puzzle after another after another but it lets players go down a different route and then come back to where they were stuck. And maybe by the time they come back, they figured something out. But yeah, I, I do find that hint systems, especially in tabletop games, are not tested as well as they should be because they really should be tested alongside the puzzles. You know, where are players having problems with the puzzles? Well, give them one of your hints. Did that help? If not, you need to playtest your hints more. Definitely. I really like what you said where the hints should ideally be worked into the game itself rather than, okay, we're stuck. Let's go look at the hint card. If it was instead baked into the art and into the story, into this, theoretically, a player could read the story blurb and they could deduce what they're trying to do from there. Or they could look at the art and see if there's a hint there. Or if they think about the context of what they're doing from like previous puzzles, that you might be able to figure out from there. And if they have multiple ways of doing this, then okay, maybe someone missed the text hint, but they noticed the art hint or something like that. Right. That sounds so, so much more immersive and more useful and gives other players who like the Where's Waldo style puzzles, gives them something to do as well. Yeah, and that that is signposting. That's exactly what signposting is, is clues embedded into the game. One of the puzzles when I was doing my research on escape rooms a puzzle where you had to identify the smell of camel dung, <laughs> of all the silly things. And the thing was, there was nothing else in this room to indicate that a camel would have possibly passed through this area at any time. So to guess that, oh yes, the smell of this dung must be camel is a wild leap, right? But there was a hitching post in the room. So all you had to do was put a little camel symbol on the hitching post and put some reins and maybe a saddle or however you however you ride camels and something else to indicate maybe a bag of camel feed that people go oh well I have no idea what this is but there's all this camel stuff could it be a camel the signposting in the room to point players towards the right answer most of the time they won't even realize it and that's where you have a really good game flow, a really good puzzle flow, where players can just go from one puzzle to the next and they don't need to stop and they don't need to search for hints. It just all seems really obvious. One thing that you brought up briefly when you were answering that question was the idea of multiple streams of puzzles where in the same game you have puzzle A and that requires you to do a set of things, but at the same time you have the components to complete puzzle B and follow down that thread. How do you keep players from getting confused as to which belongs with what puzzle and avoid that becoming a red herring moment? So again, that is all in theming and signposting and cluing within the game. You want to make sure that any art, that any components all go together, that they quite obviously fit together. For example, you're finding chess pieces around the room these are really bad examples. And at the same time, you're finding playing cards. Well, you wouldn't necessarily think that, oh, clearly these chess pieces and playing cards must go together. No, you would like take the chess pieces to the chessboard and see if there was a puzzle there. And maybe there's like a poker table somewhere else in the room and you take the cards there and solve a puzzle there. Other than the fact that they're both games, there's nothing indicating that they go together. Now, if you did want those components to go together in a puzzle, 
there would have to be somewhere in the room that would indicate that. So maybe there is a poster on the wall that has a selection of games on it and diagrams that you need to use the chess pieces and the cards to figure out. Or maybe there is a game book that has both those pieces on the cover so that you know they go together. Yeah, that has to all be indicated in the room. I have actually, in one of my games, I had a series of doors that players could open and each door was a different color. And there was a bulletin board and a piece of paper stuck on a bulletin board with a pushpin. That pushpin was blue. That's because blue's my favorite color. That's it. That was the reason the pushpin was blue, is when I was doing the art, I thought, well, blue's my favorite color, so let's make the pushpin blue. By an absolute coincidence, that clue was one that opened the blue door. <laughs> I did not plan that, but about 50% of playtesters looked at that puzzle and said, oh, it's got a blue pushpin. It must go to the blue door. Wow. That's something that needs to come through playtesting is making sure everything is clear. And at this point, they had six possible doors that they were looking at all in different colors. So the fact that they could immediately connect that to the blue door was actually amazing. And I, it made me look for that more in subsequent puzzles to make sure that, okay, are they connected through color? Is there a symbol? I have one puzzle that has a warning sign on it. Well, every component that goes with that puzzle also has a warning sign on it. It's not super obvious, but when you are putting all these pieces together and you notice that they all have warning signs, you're like, oh yes, this is confirmation that all of these pieces belong to the same puzzle. There's a really, really good video that broke down how Naughty Dog designs their games to show players what to do. I've even mid-game sitting with my wife and being like, oh, you see how this edge here leads in this direction? That's because they want me to turn right. Oh, you see how there's yellow paint splotch over here? That's because yellow really stands out on this background. That's It's drawing my eye to where I need to go next. Oh, you see that flock of birds going that way? They're drawing my attention to the movement, so I go this way. And so if there's like a running sequence where you're like trying to escape someone in The Last of Us or in Uncharted or something, I know exactly where to go. And, you know, so does everyone else who plays the game. But when I do it, I get to say, ooh, this is what they did to make me realize this is the right way to go, which is super fun and a subject I'm absolutely in love with. Yeah, I love it too. It's a thing that people don't think about, right, when they're playing games is mm -hmm. how do I know to do this? It's a lot of subconscious hints. Like I, like I said, having a spotlight on a particular area. Well, players are immediately drawn to that area. That must be important. There's a spotlight. That's actually a really good way in live action escape rooms to give hints is if players look like they're stuck, turn on a light or gradually brighten a light in one part of a room where they've missed something and that will draw them over there. Talked a little bit about not communicating with players properly where like they don't have enough information to work off of in order to solve the puzzle or they're not being drawn to the right thing. Are there any other common problems that you run into while you're playtesting games? Oh man, so many. Um, <laughs> puzzles, you can only playtest with each player once. Right. So that is really hard because if someone plays an early broken version of your game, that's it. That's the only time you can use them to play test that game, unless you add a new puzzle and you get them to just play test a single puzzle. Play testing a single puzzle is one thing, but then you also need to play test that puzzle within the context of the game. 
when players are surrounded by all these distractions and art and text that may not belong to that puzzle. You've got to look out for any like cultural biases that you have. If you're only playtesting with your cultural group, then they may not recognize that, oh, hey, I have no idea what this phrase means or what this symbol means. And that might not fly if you're looking to uh, market your game to a larger audience. Like I said earlier, hint systems have to be tested at the same time. And the one thing that I think that a lot of board game publishers have problems with when publishing puzzle games is you have to start playtesting all over from scratch once the final art is done. Right. <laughs> and be prepared to change that art. That is a tough thing because most board games, it's the mechanics that matter. And yes, the graphic design is important to usability of the game, but in puzzle games, it's essential. It's not just, oh, bad graphic design means this game is a little harder to play than it should be. It's bad graphic design means this game is impossible to play. So yeah, playtesting from scratch once you have the final art because uh, the smallest detail that an artist added in because it looked cool and it probably does, but leads to a red herring. Like I said, that blue pushpin, and that was a very, very simple graphic of just a bulletin board with a note on it. And that blue pushpin could have been a huge red herring if I hadn't accidentally matched it to the solution. Yeah, there were six other colors. If you had done red instead of blue, it goes from being a clue to being a literal red herring. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you brought up, and I'd love to dig into this a little bit more, cultural biases. <laughs> I know you spent a lot of time researching this, and I would love to know everything you got about that. I'm, I'm so fascinated in this topic. <laughs> oh man, okay, so there's lots of videos out there, actually, where I have talked about this a lot. So if you're looking for like an actual in-depth talk on my research, also I have the paper published, so you can go find that. It's in the Well-Played Journal. I'll link that in the show notes if I may. Sure. But yeah, so what I did was I interviewed a whole bunch of escape room enthusiasts. I think the average was about 250 rooms each that they had played. Of course, I had a couple that were over a thousand there, so that skewed it a little, but I think it was still around 170 rooms each if they were discounted across four continents and ask them about their experiences. What were the puzzles you couldn't solve? Because once you get to that point, the puzzles that you can't solve are probably because of cultural biases or they were just really, really bad puzzles. That's such a good point. And I got a lot of examples, so many really interesting ones and some that came up multiple times, which was really fun where someone said, oh, there was this puzzle in Montreal. And I'm like, oh yeah, this one, because three other people have mentioned that. So that's very interesting. But basically what I was trying to prove was, does cultural bias exist in escape room games? Short answer, yes, yes it does. Um, and I think everyone who has played a game knows that. But then I divided it down into five different categories. So this is based off of like various sociocultural models of interpreting culture. And so I have language, symbols, norms, artifacts, and knowledge. And knowledge is something very unique to puzzle games because most culture that we're studying, knowledge is not necessarily something that you would look at as a cultural bias. But in puzzle games, you're looking at things like riddles and trivia and things that if this person hasn't encountered that particular piece of knowledge in their life, 
then they will not know it. And there is no way that they will be able to solve a puzzle involving that piece of knowledge if they don't already know it going into the game. So yeah, it's just, it was super interesting and being able to delve into all these different examples. And I found the norms one, norms category was the most interesting. Norms and artifacts, I guess. Artifacts meaning objects that you need to know how to use or how to interact with in order to solve a puzzle. And norms are puzzles based on just cultural norms. What is something that is normal in your culture that you think everyone knows about this, but really they don't? So things like a Japanese game that required you to take your shoes off at the door when you entered into a house. Well, if you're American, it's cultural norm in a lot of places in the United States to not take your shoes off. So in this example came from an American who played a game in Japan and said, yeah, I had no idea I was supposed to do that. And so I couldn't solve that puzzle because I didn't know I was supposed to take my shoes off. So just really interesting examples there. And a lot of designers don't realize when they're making games that they come with this entire background and like this baggage of cultural context to everything that they create. And for puzzle games, I said earlier, most players are newbies. Most players have never played a puzzle game before. You can't really rely on them knowing the mechanics of how puzzles work, let alone having to interpret cultural context on top of that. Yeah, it's so interesting to go into. And there are times when it's good to have cultural context in games. A lot of games that are focused on education. There is a game in New York, which I forget the name of it now, but it is meant to teach people about Jewish culture. And so all of the puzzles are related to Jewish history and Jewish culture. And it's so interesting to look at because that is the point of the game, is you're going in not expecting to know anything, but they teach you throughout the game by solving puzzles. Oh, this is what you have to do to solve the puzzles, and this is why it's a part of our culture. I love that. Using games to teach, I think, is A, the most effective form of teaching. There is research to back that up. But it's also the most fun way to learn. <laughs> it is. I held, uh, When I was working at Wilfrid Laurier University, I assisted a group of students who were hired to design a game for a uh, dinosaur museum in Alberta. And it was really cool. So it was an entire game based on paleontology and the processes that the actual paleontologists use when they're digging up dinosaur bones. So players of that game got to do things that mimicked the actual scientific processes in order to solve puzzles. You actually got to categorize bones and figure out what dinosaur they were for. You got to dig in a sandbox and find things. You got to take core samples to see what era these dinosaurs are from and just some really cool things. And so, yeah, you can do a lot of teaching through interactive entertainment like that. Okay, so if you find that a puzzle is causing issues because of cultural bias, what do you do to fix it? Or do you just let the puzzle go? Like I'm, I'm imagining, you know, if you're making it for your own culture, often that's not going to be an issue. But if you're making it where, you know, it's gonna be published in say multiple languages, or if you expect people of different cultures to be playing your game, then what steps can you take? 
So this is something that we did. I was on the team who designed the Red Bull Escape Room World Championship in 2019. And this is something we really had to focus on because the World Championship in 2017 had a lot of cultural biases. And so I ended up getting hired to consult to make sure that didn't happen for 2019 to make it more fair for players who came from 22 different countries and not all of whom spoke English um, to play these games. So a lot of, if you wanna make something, a puzzle that's truly culturally neutral, that doesn't have any cultural influences, that's very hard because you're basically stuck with physical puzzles that are very obvious, like what you need to do. Numbers are fairly universal. So math puzzles work pretty well, mazes, things that are very consistent across cultures that everyone will recognize and know how to interact with, or things that are brand new to everyone that no one knows how to interact with. And so now you have to figure that out. But if you have a puzzle specifically that's having problems because of cultural bias, you need to just look at what that bias is and why. Um, do you have a puzzle that is set 200 years ago where there's a letter written in cursive. Well, that's gonna cause a cultural bias because children today don't learn cursive in schools. So if you've got younger people playing this, they may not be able to read that part of the puzzle. In that case, guess what? Typewriters existed back then. Or printing, that's fine. You know, it doesn't impact the validity of your game to change something to make it more accessible for players. But if it's something like trivia, or you need to be able to identify these actors, or you need to know what the number one hit song was in 1985. Those should be just removed from your game, unless it is specifically a trivia game. In which case, prepare players for that. <laughs> Make sure that they know what type of game that they're getting into so that they're not blindsided by, I'm not from this country, I don't know any of your folk songs, and a puzzle that requires me to know, you know, who sang each of these songs is not going to work. Sorry to put you on the spot here, but, and that's a fantastic answer, but I'm curious if you could go back to that example you had about the American playing the Japanese escape room and they had to take their shoes off and they didn't know. If you were having that sort of an issue, like let's say that you had the exact puzzle in the world championship, what would you do to try and fix that in that context where you're having people from all these different places around the world? Would you just try and draw more attention to it or sort of telegraph that in some way in the puzzle? Or is that something that you would just need to scrap? So it depends on the type of game. For the championship, we were trying to make it as neutral as possible to make it fair so that one team didn't have an advantage. For the example of the Japanese game, if they wanted to make that now like 99% of the players are going to be Japanese playing that. But if they were in a tourist area and wanted to attract tourists, there are ways that you can signpost that puzzle to make it a little more obvious for people who aren't as familiar with Japanese culture. So, for example, there are usually compartments near, oh gosh, I don't even want to say it because I'm going to get the word wrong. I think it's the Genkai is the area at the entryway of Japanese homes where you take your shoes off. It's a little sunken area. Usually right near there, there are compartments for shoes. So in that case, leave one of the compartments open and have a pair of shoes in there with an empty space. Players would look at that and maybe go, oh, wait, 
you take your shoes off here. Maybe I need to put my shoes in there or have like a label, a picture of a shoe on a compartment or have a specific shelf where it's clearly meant that you put your shoes. So there are ways to signpost it that make it a little more obvious what you're supposed to do. Right. And even like showing characters in the scenes, not wearing shoes and trying to make that a little bit more prominent, I guess, stuff like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Even through video or pictures where, yeah, you show characters taking their shoes off in that area and putting them away, or um, those can work really well as hints if players are very stuck. But yeah, you're right. Just pictures in the scene or things that are part of the environmental storytelling, things that aren't necessarily part of the puzzles, but are included in the scene to set the stage. And when you were talking about the knowledge component as well, that got me thinking, because there was a puzzle that I had to do in one of the unlock escape room in a box style board games, and it required knowledge of music theory. And luckily, uh, my wife knows a little bit about that. So when we were doing that puzzle, she was able to help us solve that. But if she wasn't there, none of the rest of us knew anything about music theory. Not only would we have not been able to solve the puzzle, we wouldn't have known that we weren't able to solve the puzzle. You know, we, yeah. we wouldn't have even known what it was asking of us. In those instances, how much do you worry about someone at the table having knowledge in a specific area? So what I like to do is completely reinvent what that knowledge is. Make it completely new to everyone so that even if you have knowledge in that area, it will take you the same amount of time to solve a puzzle. So for example, people who play a lot of escape rooms generally have a lot of ciphers memorized. They know Morse code, they know Braille, they know pig pen ciphers, they know a lot of ciphers just off the top of their head. So when they come across one in an escape room, they don't need to wait to find the guide and the index for how to solve it. They just solve it straight out. Well, that might mean that they miss a couple puzzles because the room relies on you having to find that guide first and solve another couple puzzles before you can solve that cipher. Well, I've done this in a few rooms is I create my own cipher something completely new, or you take the symbols used in other ciphers and you use them for different purposes. You mix it all up. And in that case, even if someone knows the information, they still have to start from scratch to solve the same as everyone else. And that can be done with trivia too. Don't use real actors. Use fake actors. Have movie posters around your room for fake movies and now everyone needs to go and find out, instead of like the matrix, have the spreadsheet. And everyone needs to find out what the main actor is in that. <laughs> it makes it a little more interesting too, because you can include that as part of world building and create a more in-depth backstory for your room and for your characters versus just using trivia that may become dated. And yeah, and things like music where not everyone is going to know that. How does your design approach change when you're designing puzzles for high player counts? You already mentioned that you could have uh, more of the manipulation style puzzles where you're going to have, for want of a better term, busy work. It's going to require more time of someone to do that so that you free up the other people. Are there any other uh, tips or tricks for dealing with larger player count puzzle games? So for larger player counts, 
you generally want to have a lot more puzzles, ideally multiple puzzle paths that players can go down at the same time because you want to keep everyone busy. If you've got a dozen people playing a game, you want to make sure that everyone has something to do at all times because the last thing you want is someone sitting in the corner bored. So having multiple paths where multiple puzzles can be solved at a time is great. Um, separating people into smaller groups also works well. Um, there are some, some tabletop games and some live action games where you get separated out and you get put into different spaces and then you have to work on that alone and then come together for final puzzles or partway through the game for a new section. A lot of teamwork puzzles work really well for high player counts, so puzzles that actually require a high number of people to solve them. So things like players have multiple pieces of the puzzle and they need to communicate together to get the right answer. You can't just look at all the pieces at the same time. Yeah, I'd say those are probably my top three tips for dealing with high player counts. Yeah, I played some games where they really don't account for this at all. I think the most egregious example is some of the exit where they'll have a book of puzzles, but most of the puzzles are in the book and the book is small. So either everyone's all huddled around the book or, you know, you pass the book back and forth constantly. Yeah. So that one really stuck out in my mind as one that didn't consider these sorts of things. It is a very rare tabletop puzzle game that is actually accessible for more than two or three players just due to the size of the components. So that's another thing. If you're doing a tabletop game, make the components bigger. Just make it easier for people to read things across a table, um, especially when everyone's going to be staring at the same picture. Yeah, that's huge. Otherwise, you're just shutting out people. They just can't play and they just have to sit there. And then what are they going to do? They're going to go onto their phones. They're going to miss context and they're going to get lost. Yep. So yeah, so it's it's really just making sure there's always something for every player. If you've got a game marked for six players, and I don't blame tabletop puzzle games that mostly say one to six players, because potentially sometimes you could play six players if, you know, three of them are kids who don't care and one is just there for the socializing, but that's hard to do. Um, mm -hmm. You really need to think about what is every player going to be doing at every moment. How does designing puzzles for real life escape rooms differ from designing puzzles in a box? Oh, make it bigger. The whole mm. point of real life escape rooms is players want to do things that they can't do in their normal life. So you want to give them an experience that they can't have around a table or in their own home. So make it big, make the puzzles massive so that it's just a really cool experience. Let them do physical things, let them move around. If you're going to take them to a physical escape room and then give them a bunch of pieces of paper, to solve standing around a table, why wasn't that a take-home game, you know? So you wanna give them a big experience or a cool experience that they can't actually do in their house. When you're designing escape rooms, how do you strike the balance between enough to do without hitting a sensory overload of lots of stuff? And especially when considering what we were just talking about, the different player counts that are potentially there. So there's a lot of different ways you can gate 
escape room games, I think one of the most common is having multiple rooms. So players have five or six puzzles to do in one room, and then they end up unlocking a door and going into another room. And that gives you not only a physical divide, but probably you will not need components from the first room in the second room, or if you did, it would be made obvious in the game. So it gives you that, that separation. This is done with, and now we've moved on to this section. Or having some sort of indication that, you know, I'm done with this thing, it can be set aside and moved on so that you're not coming back to it and being like, wait, have we used this before? Do we need it again? And that also allows you to have a lot of players involved if you have multiple puzzles available at once and then bring them together for one gate that unlocks a big moment because you don't want any of your players to miss any of the big moments in your game. So you have everyone solving. They're all like, I got a red one and I got a blue two, etc. out of the answers of your puzzles. And then you're going, oh wait, this lock on this door has colored notches. Now we need to feed those in. Okay, sure. This is, these are really bad puzzle examples, just so you're aware. Please don't judge me by them. Um, and then everyone says, okay, we got all the answers for all these puzzles. Everyone comes together, one person enters the lock and boom, something lights up and the door slides into the wall and smoke comes out and there's a mysterious voice. And then they move into the second room together and split off to solve puzzles again. So you can do that in rooms is have it be wide open with multiple puzzle tracks and then come together for a meta puzzle and then spread out again. But that type of gating, I think, really works well in escape rooms. So we talked a little bit about the art in games and how you have to play test it again once you have the final art. How do you do the prototyping for the sort of where's Waldo hidden object in the art style puzzles? Yeah, so you have to learn how to art. Um, <laughs> I learned uh, Photoshop and Illustrator and SketchUp and all of these different programs so I could figure out how to art to prototype my puzzle games because that's just what you've got to do. Um, it can be very simple. You can just use clip art off of Google, but it needs to be prototyped to be playtested. And it's okay if it's really obvious for your initial prototypes, especially for hidden object puzzles, which I'm, I'm generally not a fan of because if you don't know that you're looking for a hidden object, they're very hard to find. But yeah, if you're doing like hidden numbers or they need to spot this obscure thing that's in a piece of art that has a lot of things in it. We'll just get clip art of all those things and put them in. That's fine. Yeah, like I said, it's okay if it's obvious for initial prototypes and players get it right away as long as you playtest the art once you have the final art. You have designed some phenomenal Escape Room in a Box style games. And I didn't really have a question for this. I just wanted to brag <laughs> to everybody about how great it was. So I played two of the three and I love the first two so much in that series that I refuse to play the third one until it gets published, which I really hope it does soon. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to highlight my favorite thing about those, which is when I sat down to play test, uh, you had said, okay, and when you know the answer, flip over the card and it will confirm that you have the right answer. And I said, what? How well, how do I know that I've got the right answer? Because I'm used to the unlock series where you punch in the code and it says, da ding, you did it. And you said, oh, you'll know. And when you when you said that, I was very skeptical. 
And every single time, without fail, every single puzzle, it was 100% could not be more obvious you had the answer or you didn't. Because there's always a thematic obvious answer. I think the second one I was playing with someone and they're like, oh, I think this might be the answer. I was like, nope, it's not obvious. <laughs> like you're, you're thinking maybe this combination of letters and numbers might work. No, 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 no. You will know. If we're in a, a theme park, it will be Ferris wheel or something. I just thought that was really impressive how simple that system was and how well it worked consistently puzzle to puzzle. I was very impressed. Oh, that's so nice. It's like the nicest thing I've heard about my puzzles. But yeah, for real though, that's, that is my goal when I design puzzles and especially in those games specifically. I always try and make the answer relate to either the puzzle or the game somehow. I've been designing over the past few years a lot of puzzle hunt style games um, and those are generally a lot harder than puzzles you will find in escape room games. They have multiple aha moments and multiple levels to solve a single puzzle. But I always try to make the puzzle itself thematic to what the answer is. So if the answer is something like subtract, then the puzzle will have something to do with removing letters and or removing numbers from something. And you will be doing that action in the puzzle and then you get the answer that subtracts and you go, oh, I should have known this. That makes so much sense. And that's just my goal. I just, I love that style of puzzle design where you get the answer and it just fits. It just reinforces that feeling that, yes, I did it. And it it's like the, the square peg going in the square hole, right? It just really reinforces that feeling that you did it and you got exactly right. Exactly. And it's so important with um, the games you talked about, which are have the uh, prototype name of Conundrum. Those games, because there is no app, there is no technology involved, how you find the answer is just literally by flipping over the lock card and seeing what the answer is. I had to confirm for players that they knew they had the right answer because if everything was just a random series of letters or numbers, they could be completely off base and flip the card and go, wait, we didn't do any of that. That doesn't make any sense. It's an extra level of confirmation and feedback for players before they flip the card that like, oh, this answer makes total thematic sense. It must be the right answer. There's no other way that we could solve this to get something else. That was my goal with those games, especially. Mm -hmm. Before we wrap up, are there any other points you want to bring up relating to puzzles or escape rooms or any thoughts you had on their design just in general? Well, if you're interested in more information and me talking about things more, I do have a website. So that's shannonmcdowell.ca and it has a bunch of articles and media and things that I've spoken about puzzles and escape rooms. It also has some of my prototype puzzles that didn't make it into any of my games. So um, there was a, a wedding puzzle box that I tried to design that was wedding themed at one point. And so there's a whole bunch of puzzles from that up on my site because I didn't end up publishing it. So it's all there. There's a convention that is around puzzle and escape room design. It's called Reality Escape Con. And it just happened in August and it was virtual for the past two years, but hopefully next year we'll be able to be in person. And they have just released the videos from the convention, all the talks that their amazing speakers had. 
So if you're interested in more information about puzzle design and escape room design, they were phenomenal talks. So you can go to their website or go to their YouTube page and watch those. And they are really great information for anyone who wants to design this style of game. That's awesome. I'll throw all those links into the show notes to make things easy for the listeners in case you uh, didn't catch that. You don't have to rewind and panic. (laughs) So before we go, we always like to end on asking a fun question that's completely unrelated to game design. My question for you is what is your favorite non-smart electronic possession? As in not a computer chip, so no phone or computer. And what is your favorite non-electronic possession? So this would be something that has no electricity through whatsoever. So when it's electronic, when it's not. So you realize that this is probably the hardest question that you've asked during this entire interview, right? <laughs> like, oh my goodness, how am I supposed to pick a favorite possession? Ridiculous. But you get two, one electronic, one not. Right, that makes it even worse. <laughs> uh, no, but for real, for an electronic possession, I'd probably go with my keyboard um, because I have an uh, electric keyboard that I've been playing piano since I was, I think, six years old. And it is very relaxing and I've had to go without it a couple times in my life and I don't wanna do that again. So I always have a a keyboard somewhere around. My favorite non-electronic possession, I have um, an art print that hangs in my bedroom that is my favorite. It makes me smile every time I look at it. It is a painting by uh, James Coleman, and he was a Disney artist. And I bought this print. It's of Captain Hook's pirate ship in Neverland. And you can just barely see Captain Hook and Peter Pan fighting on the ship. But uh, I bought it at Disney World at the Festival of the Arts, and the artist was there, and he signed it. And it was just, it's like my favorite art piece that I own. So it just brings me joy. That's awesome. My answers are for electronic possession. Uh, I splurged and bought a Vitamix. (laughs) And let me tell you, having tried to sort of split the difference and buy the mid-range blender, if, if you don't really care about blender, just just buy a crappy like $30 blender and it'll be fine. But if you're like me and you're really, really fussy about texture and you're a bit of a foodie, just go Vitamix. There's no other way to do it. <laughs> it's really expensive. Oh my gosh, it's so worth it. Best purchase I've made, even though it costs so much money. And my favorite non-electronic possession is my weighted blanket, which helps me get to sleep every single night. I did not really believe that weighted blankets were a thing and actually helped, but I got one cheap at a warehouse clearance sale thing and I stopped using it for like a month for no particular reason. And I started getting like moderate anxiety and was having trouble sleeping. And then I realized it was because I wasn't sleeping with my blanket. So highly recommend trying one out if you haven't before. That is very interesting. I have not. Well, I can loan you one because I bought an extra one by accident. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's our show. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening. Chen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Fun Problems Pod 
or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.